Welcome to the finale of Season 6 and Part 2 of the Hometown Legend Special. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Thank you all so much for returning to celebrate the end of Season 6, and what a season it has been. Now before we get started, I gotta tell you, I've been sick as a dog since the release of Part 1, but as they say, the show must go on. Now I'll try to edit out as much of the scratchy voice and coughing and throat clearing as possible, but please bear with me. The old pipes aren't in tip-top shape. That said, I have the granddaddy of season finales lined up for you guys this evening. A show so jam-packed with content, so plump with the paranormal, that I can't afford to waste a single moment. So what do you say we get started? Our first call of the evening comes to us from the state of Tennessee. The following is Chris's submission. Hey Monsters Among Us team, this is Chris from Tennessee, and I wanted to submit a story or legend for the upcoming episodes. This is in the town of uh, Medina, and it's the dollhouse grave in the Hope Hill Cemetery. The story goes that a young girl died either by disease or murder, depending on who tells the story, and her family placed a dollhouse, almost like a, a walk-in playhouse, over the grave as a memorial. Legend always said, if you went there at night, you can see or hear the girl in the little house playing with her dolls. Of course, it's not an easy task since the cemetery closes at sundown and it's considered trespassing if caught there at that time. Since the statute of limitations is long past, since my story happened around 2005, I'll say that some college friends and I found a secluded area to park and made our way to the cemetery one night. The dollhouse actually has lights installed in and around it, so it gives off an eerie glow in the darkness. We made our way to it, being careful and trying our best to be respectful to the area since it is a full-blown uh, full graveyard and has gravestones and resting places of people's loved ones. We sat there as quiet as possible, listening for any out-of-the-ordinary sounds, but of course, in a cemetery in the middle of the night, everything sounds a bit creepy. We also took several pictures with a digital camera to see if anything would show up, but nothing but the dollhouse were in the shots. There is one thing that happened that night, though. We decided we needed to head back to our vehicle, and when we got there, all the doors were open and the battery was dead. Luckily, there was a quick-charge battery kit in the spare tire area of the SUV, so we left as quickly as we could. Now, there are uh, houses in the area of the cemetery, of course, this could have been an angry neighbor wanting to mess with the dumb kids who were in the graveyard, but where's the fun in that? I've sent you some links that uh, have pictures of the cemetery, the dollhouse, and a little more of a backstory. Thanks for all the hard work you guys put into the show. It helps this lowly government office worker make it through the week a little bit easier. Thank you so much, Chris. It's weird all the different memorials that people make to the fallen. I've certainly seen some strange headstones in my day. And let me also say, I surely hope the nonsense in Washington is over soon for you, Chris. Our hearts go out to you and every other furloughed government worker in this difficult and extremely frustrating time. Thank you again, Chris, for taking the time to share your hometown's legend. Now, our next submission also comes from the state of Tennessee. The following is a call from Christy. 
Hi, Derek. I've been listening to your podcast for a while and wanted to submit a few hometown legends for the next season finale. My name is Christy, and I'm from the western part of Tennessee, close to Jackson, the largest city outside of Memphis in this part of our state. We have several claims to fame in our former residents, like Carl Perkins, Isaac Tigret, who was the founder of the Hard Rock Cafe. The first in the U.S. was here in Jackson, although that is in debate at times. Uh, Jabari Greer, Van Jones, the famous railroad engineer, Casey Jones, and more. But we also have some great hometown ghosts, monsters, and legends. I have a few that I'd like to share, as well as some personal experiences, but I'll wait on those for a later episode. For this submission, this is the legend of Hearts Bridge Road. There are a few different stories about what goes on when you drive on the bridges here. Some say you see shadow people standing next to the guardrails late at night. Some say you see a headless woman looking for her head. Some say you hear screams. But they all come back to this variation of the classic Lady in the Road story. As some locals tell it, many years ago, a woman was killed on the bridge. Sometimes it's a car accident, sometimes a motorcycle accident, sometimes murder. And if you drive on the bridge late at night, past midnight, you'll see her. But there's a catch. You have to stop your car on the bridge, flash your lights three times, honk your horn three times, and turn the engine off. If you do all of that, you will see the woman appear in front of your car. She appears out of a fog rising from below the bridge. Sometimes she's headless. Sometimes she is holding her head and a baby in the other arm, and sometimes you only hear a blood-curdling scream and see a shadow or mist. Some also say she will shake the car or hit it if you don't acknowledge her presence. But all stories do agree that you'll have trouble cranking your car after she appears. I haven't tested the legend of Hearts Bridge Road, but I do work at a school on the same road near the bridges. I've definitely felt uneasy at times when I've been working alone in the building, hearing doors open and close, shuffling and footsteps in the rooms around me, all when I know I'm the only person there. But for now, I'll chalk that up to being alone in a school building late at night while I'm listening to your podcast. Thanks for such a great podcast and for giving us a place to share our stories. If you ever do another school and college ghost episode, I have a few experiences I can share. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Christy, for sharing that story. And I gotta be honest, that one's kind of creepy. Next time I find myself in Tennessee, I just might check that one out. Uh, with a little luck, I might catch something on my dash camera. Thank you again, Christy, for taking the time to share that story. And I definitely look forward to all your other submissions. Our next submission comes to us anonymously. Almost. The following story is A's out of the state of New Hampshire. Hello. Hopefully I made it in time. I keep forgetting about the Hometown Legends episode coming up. I have one that might fit in. I went to high school in Salem, New Hampshire. There was this legend of a place that people called Burnt House. Supposedly, the house caught on fire, killing the family inside. Rumor had it, if you visited at night and put flour on your car, handprints would appear in the flour as the spirits tried to push your car out of the driveway. I visited this house during the day one time with my boyfriend at the time. I couldn't get up the guts to visit at night. Now, from the road, it did look like it was a house that caught on fire. It was all black on the outside, and the windows were smashed out. Up close, though... The black was just really worn paint. It looked like charcoal when far away. We found an open window in the back of the house, so of course we had to go inside. The inside just looked like an abandoned house for the most part. Broken furniture and appliances, graffiti and holes in the walls. Once inside the attic, there were thousands of unopened envelopes. Like a thick layer of unopened mail on the floor. It was pretty creepy. I don't think the rumors were true about the fire, but the house definitely had that spooky factor going for it. I could see why it could be a story people told to freak people out. Maybe even get people on a dare. Anyways, love the podcast. Have a good day. Thank you. The one thing that sticks out to me in this story is the unopened mail. You see, I can't resist a good mystery. I gotta know what's in those envelopes. 
In my head, I'm imagining some old letters. Perhaps a birthday card with $5 in it. Is it still a federal offense if the mail has been sitting there for 20 years? I really want to know what's inside. Thank you again, A, for taking the time to share your hometown's legend. This house reminds me of the house that we used to explore in college to scare all the girls. But unfortunately, that house, the Potter House, had no mail to open. Thank you again for taking the time to share. Our next submission of the evening is of the written variety. The following comes to us from Sean in my home state of Ohio. Hello. First off, thanks for the podcast and taking the time to read all of these submissions. I hope mine measures up. I've had two separate paranormal occurrences at the same location outside of Hilliard, Ohio. In 2006, I was a junior in high school and a few friends and I were looking for something to do. We couldn't buy beer yet and really had no plans for this particular Saturday evening. So why not check out a haunted house? Well, like most suburbs in the U.S., Hilliard had its fair share of urban legends, like crybaby bridges, haunted school bathrooms, etc., etc. So there was a house on, we'll call it Jackson Road. It's not the actual road, but I think the house in question still stands, and I'm sure the owners have had their fill of trespassers. This house was known to pretty much everyone to be haunted. We debated on going there until another friend met up with us. Let's call him Mike. Mike claimed that, in actuality, a real haunted house was further down Jackson Road, behind a new recently finished home. Not wanting to waste time with fake haunted houses, we took Mike's advice and headed down in search of the real deal. So myself, Mike, and a couple, Alan and Katie, piled into my 1984 BMW around 11 p.m. After an hour of searching, we found the house in question. Sure enough, it sat back a long lane, which it shared with a new house very close to the road. I turned off the lights of the car and crept back the lane so as not to alert the dwellers of the new house. We came upon an old-style farm home. Two stories, peeling paint with broken windows. The home sat on about two acres of unkept grass and had a number of small sheds and hog boxes located throughout. It looked very creepy. So being the young and dumb teens that we were, we decided to walk about the property. We couldn't get inside, all the doors were boarded up, and none of us wanted to risk being cut by clambering into a broken window. Being the days before iPhones, we had a disposable camera and took a complete roll of snapshots before we were ready to leave. We jumped in the car and the battery is completely dead. At this point, Katie, who claimed to be very spiritual, said that she was having an attack. She began to hyperventilate and honestly made a situation go from kind of creepy to genuinely scary. Luckily, my car was a manual, and with two men pushing and one releasing the clutch, we managed to get it started. We hauled butt down the lane and went to Meyer, of course. We were all in dire need of some food, and they had 24-hour photo drop-off. My car started fine, leaving Meyer, and every day after that until I sold it some months later. Alan got the film a few days later and for the most part found nothing remarkable, save for one picture. It was of Mike's back as he was walking past the side of the house. In the lower right-hand corner, you could see a face in the basement window. It looked like it was made of smoke, but clear as day, it was a face. For weeks, we showed it to anybody that had eyes, and still, in 2018, it's one of Alan's prized possessions. Fast forward two years. Similar beginnings, I'm in London, Ohio with a couple of buddies, one of whom recently became interested in the paranormal, Jake. We again had no beer, see a pattern here, and Jake claimed that he wanted to go ghost hunting. These two friends, Jake and Rob, asked if I knew of any spooky places. Sure, I told them, but it's no joke. They insisted on going, which was fine by me, because I wanted to see if anything else would happen, solidifying that the event in 2006 with Alan wasn't a fluke. So we get to the house, and this time actually go inside. The once boarded back door had been kicked in at some point. We all split up, I take the kitchen. Jake goes upstairs and Rob wanders off into the bedrooms. Nothing happens. We even tried a little coaxing, asking if any spirits are there, and asking for signs. You know, stereotypical foolishness. We reconvene in the kitchen, thinking it was a bust. Then I remember... It was the basement window that had the gaseous visage peering out. 
so the three of us headed down through the basement steps, guided by what little moonlight slipped through the old panels and our phone screens. Jake first, then me, followed by Rob. It looks like an old farmhouse basement. Big rusty freezer, old shelves with some paint cans. We explore for a bit, then decide it was merely an ordinary basement and begin for the stairs in reverse order. Then, Jake freaks. He claws past me, yelling out half words and completely bowls Rob over on his way out. I help Rob to his feet. We both assume it was a bad joke on Jake's part, just to scare us. Then, we hear it. A hiss. Nothing incredible, just a hiss. Could it be a cat or a possum? We take a few more steps toward the staircase, then we hear it again. What we heard that second time still gives me chills. It was a hiss as loud as a scream. I'm talking, make your ears ring loud. Think of a steam whistle, but in a lower pitch. We tear out of there like bandits. Meeting Jake at the vehicle, we all knew something was up. I jump in my truck and try to start it. It barely turns over. The truck at this time was nearly new. On our way back, we shared our experiences. Jake claimed to have something grab him, with what he described as crushing, freezing claws. He had also heard the hiss all the way outside, even over mine and Rob's yelps coming from the basement. I have not been back, and I have not wanted to go back. I did not believe in the paranormal before 2006, but I have ever since. With much respect, Sean from Columbus, Ohio. Thank you, Sean. Coincidentally, I actually lived in Hilliard, Ohio in 2006, and I'm a little bit bummed that I didn't know you guys to join on this little adventure. In fact, my best friend still lives in Hilliard, Ohio. Matt, if you're listening, hello, buddy. So next time I'm visiting Matt and his family, maybe he knows of this particular haunted house, something I'd love to check out firsthand. Thank you again, Sean, for taking the time to share your hometown's legend. In keeping with the theme, our next call comes to us also from the state of Ohio. The following is Vince's story. Hi, Derek. My name is Vince. Uh, I'm from Ohio. I was listening to your most recent podcast, and I heard you mention that you were interested in uh, treasure stories, and I thought of one that I heard or read somewhere a while back. So there was a railroad line that ran from uh, Newark, Ohio, up to Sandusky, Ohio, uh, it was a former B&O rail, railroad line. And uh, from my understanding, that was one of the uh, oldest lines in Ohio, one of the first railroads built in Ohio. I, I believe I read a story in a newspaper once, or a local newspaper does, like, uh, historical bits from time to time. And I, I'm pretty sure that's where I heard the story. It goes that during the Civil War that Abraham Lincoln was offering, uh, they were offering, offering money in the, in the form of gold for people to, to volunteer for the Union Army during the Civil War. And apparently that there was a shipment of this gold that was uh, running through my, my small town along that B&O Railroad line, which is now a, uh, now that that line's been abandoned and tore up, it's now like a bike like a bike path. And apparently the train derailed carrying the gold and where the, the place in which it derailed was uh, kind of like a wetlands area, uh, like swampy story goes that the gold was consumed by the swamp and it was never recovered and now that it's a bike path they say that if you go out to the road near which the train derailed that you can actually see you know if you go out at night uh if you look down the line from the road you can actually see a light shining back at you and they say that that's um you know possibly the conductor of the train or people that maybe died in the derailment or something kind of protecting the gold uh, because it's never been discovered. And they say that there was actually efforts after that and, you know, maybe like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago to try to drain that swamp and find the gold and it's never been found. So I don't know. I thought it would be an interesting story to tell you. I heard you were looking for treasure stories, so I thought I'd close in. Thanks. Thank you, Vince. I'm actually shocked. I knew I threw the offer out there to... Uh share treasure stories when I didn't think anybody would actually take me up. Now, you see, I grew up metal detecting. My dad and my uncles were all pretty big into the hobby. And even at a very early age, I was a big adopter of the technology and the hobby. Fast forward to today, where I work, (laughs) it seems like seven days a week, 
usually 12 hours a day uh, on various projects. So I don't exactly have a ton of time to um, to continue the hobby, but I do own a few metal detectors, and from time to time it is something that I like to do. So this story is very, very intriguing to me, especially uh, knowing that I go back to Ohio quite often, and I actually used to work for the Air Force in Newark, Ohio. So this is a story that I'm definitely going to research further, and perhaps one of these days we can do a special episode uh, about local treasures. I know it's not exactly paranormal related, but there's a lot of the same elements between ghost stories and local hauntings and uh, local treasure stories. And in several cases, including Vince's, there's actually ghostly activity uh, reported in conjunction with the treasure. So that said, if you have a treasure story from your hometown, please call it in. Be sure to let me know early in the call that it is a treasure call. That way I can file it accordingly. But, um, yeah, that's definitely something that we would like to explore in a future episode. So thank you so much, Vince, for sharing your hometown's legend. Our next story comes to us from the state of Illinois. The following call was submitted anonymously. Hi, Derek. My submission is for the Hometown Legends episode. This takes place in Zion, Illinois, also in an abandoned cookie factory. When I was a kid, maybe younger than 12, I'd always heard about, you know, the cookie factories haunted, and it, it was on the other side of town, so I never saw it or anything like that. But I was always told that it burned, or that there was a fire and they closed, and honestly, that wasn't it. It actually closed just because of economic reasons. But the buildings fell into disrepair and were completely abandoned in, like, the old industrial side of town, which was actually only, like, one block, but it had super old buildings in it from the early 1900s. But anyway, as a kid, I never went over there because it was literally on the other side of town from where I lived, and I had nobody take me over there, nothing like that. So all I had were stories. Uh, Right up until one of my sisters got her driver's license, you know, we were all interested in ghosts and scary stories and things like that. So, you know, late at night, bored, don't have anything to do, we would go through there and drive and look and be like, oh my God, do you see that? There's somebody in the window. And there probably definitely wasn't because the same thing was always there every time we ever drove past. So it's definitely, it was a play on the eyes. But anyway, we used to go through cemeteries, you know, look for ghosts there. But, you know, that was in my youth. But anyway, so we decided one day we were going to grow a pair and go to the cookie factory. And it was daylight still, maybe like winter, 3.30, 4 p.m. So like it's not super bright out, but you can still see what's going on. And, you know, it's an old abandoned building, so we didn't want to be out there in the dark anyway. So we get there, and there was a like a squad car in the parking lot. And it's all gravel, all disgusting. There's there's literally no glass in these in the building, in, in the windows. It's, it's all destroyed completely gutted all the copper wiring's been taken out like this is literally the building from your nightmares so when we get there there's a squad car in the parking lot and my sister drives up to the squad to the police officer and she says hey you know are we allowed to go in here can can we look inside here and just you know stay on the on the ground floor but like just look around and see what's up and the police officer literally turned to my sister and goes Honestly, I don't care what you do. I'm getting out of here. And he left. So we're like, okay, we got permission. My sister goes and drives over to the other side where there was a clear entrance, like a large, um, like a, a truck bay. So we go over there. It's open and we go in from that way. And the bottom, the bottom floor, you know, was covered in graffiti and all the wiring was removed. There was no lights I mean, of course, there wouldn't be electricity in there, but I mean, there was no fixtures, no nothing. Everything was gone. And so we walk across and it was probably maybe a three to four hundred foot length that we walked and it got pretty dark on the other side. And uh, there was a, a corner, there was like a stairwell that went up to the second story and there were offices up there. So we get up there and, you know, we're, we're being really careful not to touch anything because who knows the last time anybody had like a tetanus shot or anything like that. But so we go upstairs and there's just uh, like a hallway down the middle and there's offices on either side. 
And um, my sister and her boyfriend walked down the hallway maybe like 20 feet away from where my oldest sister and I were. And we popped into one room. And in that room on the left, on the far wall, there was spray painted in black. It said, God rest all these poor souls. And I read it. And then my sister read it out loud. And from one side, the far side of the building, 300 feet away or so, my estimate, I could hear this faint rumble. And uh, my sister and her boyfriend started walking back toward where we were. And this rumble, like, it was like thunder. It was insane. And my sister and her boyfriend kind of start walking toward us super quickly, briskly, I guess you could say. And we meet each other out in the hallway. This rumble, like, I could feel it. It came through the building from one side to the other, and it went through me. And we all just kind of looked at each other like, oh my god, that was insane. And so we hightailed it out of there. We got out of there so fast. You know, it it's weird. I don't have any explanation for it. We were literally the only people in there. There's no electricity. It is a dead and vacant area of town. Um, so I have no idea what that was. So we, uh, we go outside, get out there, and as we're getting into the car, another squad car pulls up, and he he's runs the plates and all that, and my sister's like, you know, so-and-so officer told us we can come in here. He said he was getting out, and we didn't get in, in any trouble or ticketed or anything like that, because obviously we're just a bunch of dumb kids not doing anything with a flashlight and a camera, so he probably just thought we were idiots. But anyway, so that was my experience at the Zion Cookie Factory. I recently, when I was going to submit to the Hometown Legends episode, I did some looking around, and, um, you know, there were a slew of, like, (laughs) dead bodies found there, I guess. I don't... The only one that I could really find uh, any actual names and documentation on uh, was one that happened in 1998, where a guy killed, like, his business partner, and he, he drove him to the cookie factory. I, well, I guess beforehand, he dismembered his body, drove him to the cookie factory, put him in, like, a metal trunk, covered the trunk, or, like, doused the trunk in gasoline. He climbed into the trunk with this guy and lit himself and his friend that he killed on fire. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't really have much else other than that, but I guess that's what happened. Um, so that is my submission for the Hometown Legends episode, and I know it wasn't great, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. Not a cryptid story, but it was a legend nonetheless. Uh, I love your show very, very much. I always look forward to it. Thanks. Thank you, caller. Now this sounds eerily similar to the origin story of one of my favorite films, Edward Scissorhands. If you recall, Edward was created by an inventor that lived in a cookie factory on the hill above town. Now I'm sure that this caller's story is not related in any way, but I couldn't pass up a chance to talk about one of my favorite films. Thank you again, caller, for taking the time to share that story. Our next submission of the evening comes to us from Larry from Parts Unknown. Hi Derek. Love the show, by the way. I've been sitting on this story for a while, and I'm very excited to finally submit my hometown legend. So I'm from Missouri, and around these parts is a place called Satan's Tunnel. There are many stories about this supposedly haunted Satan's Tunnel. Legend goes that the land that the road is on was owned by devil worshippers, and long ago above the tunnel at the end of this road was a railroad track, and a guy crossing the tracks got hit and was thrown to the bottom of the tunnel and was killed. His ghost is said to haunt the tunnel still. In the 70s, some kids were checking out the tunnel and found an old bum taking shelter inside the tunnel and talked to him a bit and he told the story of the ghostly man in the tunnel. And if you walk through the tunnel quietly, you can hear the whistle of the train still. The next day, police found the bum dead inside the tunnel, his face frozen with fear and cause of death unknown. The caution tape is still seen where they never did take it down. There's also reported to be a haunted graveyard and a witch's house in the woods. 
Lots of evil activity reported here. There's also a house with a big window. And supposedly, there's a lady in a red dress sitting in a rocking chair in that big window. It's also on private land, and no one is supposed to go there. Not sure why, but I've never been there before. Now, my experience wasn't too exciting, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Most people go at night because that's the time when you'll experience the most activity. I went with friends, and we're pulling up to the place, and you see these trees that kind of feel like you're going through the gates of hell. But let's be real. As we're driving down the road, we see a house and the lights are on. My friend is driving slowly, and I see someone standing out on the porch who seems to be watching us go by. So we're at Satan's Tunnel and get out of the vehicle. I'm a little on edge because of the things I've heard about this place. We see nothing, feel nothing, kind of a boring and waste of time feeling. Or so I thought. We start to leave the tunnel, and my friend's girlfriend freaks out about a light catching up to us, screaming at him to drive. Weird part is, none of us see anything. I also heard about another story from a friend of mine who went there as well. He told me that his car windows fogged up and the people in his car were starting to see handprints on the windows of his car. That's all I have about my hometown legend. I love the podcast so much and it's my absolute favorite to listen to. Thank you, Larry. Now, Satan's Tunnel sounds very similar to a haunted tunnel that I grew up near. I realize a lot of these stories harken back to Ohio, but you gotta remember I spent almost 30 years in the state. Now, of course, I'm talking about the Moonville Tunnel. And for more on that legendary location, I'm gonna kick it over to YouTube user Caitlin Stone. The tunnel was built in the mid-1800s, and as the tunnel was built, the town just kind of popped up of Moonville. The trains ran through this area until the middle 80s. So there's been numerous people killed from here to Zaleski, but this area right here is known for its ghost. There's many deaths that's happened on these tracks over the years, about 50, be it suicide, be it being crushed by the trains, being fallen off the trains. There was many different ghost stories here, but the first one in the paper popped up in 1859, and it tells of a brakeman who was off duty at the time, and he had been with his friends in a little shack on the side of the tracks. Well, it was getting dark, and it was time to walk home, and as he walked through the tunnel with his lantern, he got hit by the train. His friends found him some couple hours later with his legs crushed on the tracks, but he was still alive. Sometimes it would just fly through. They also said when the train didn't stop, it shook the tunnel because it was so narrow. So if you were walking on the side, there was just a little area. If you were walking on the side, you could get thrown under the train if it was moving full blast. The trains weren't supposed to be coming through here, and there was a Girl Scout troop camping here and somehow the train got off the track through Moonville and hit her dead and they say you can still hear her screaming at night. For more on that tragically terrifying place, I highly recommend you hit the show notes tab in the website to continue watching Caitlin Stone's video. Thank you again, Larry, for sharing your hometown legend. Now I have several more stories to share with you, but first I need to hit up a few of these announcements. Believe it or not, the hats are in. Visit MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com and click on the shop tab to pick up your beanie, dad hat, or my favorite, the trucker hat style. Keep checking back for other items, because I have several new products coming in for Season 7. And I should add, please continue to call in your stories over the little hiatus. If you have a story, please call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. And do me a solid, if you know someone with a great story, please encourage them to share their tale today. Without your submissions, this program cannot continue. So please do your part and submit today. And speaking of the hiatus, a little reminder that the show will be dark for the next two weeks as I tear down the old studio and move into the new one. 
so look for the season 7 premiere on February 14th. And speaking of that new studio, as promised, everyone that donated $40 or more will have their name forever immortalized in the new studio. What I've decided to do is half the wall of the studio is actually uh, red brick. So I'm going to carve each donator's name or personal message into a brick in the studio. A little gesture to forever enclose them in this new space. Now if this is something you'd like to be included in, there's still time. Donate $40 or more before the 1st of February and you automatically get a brick. I will be emailing each and every donator with specific instructions in a few weeks. Now the construction portion of the build is nearly paid for, thanks to you fine folks. But any additional funds raised will be used to replace some obsolete equipment in the studio. So if you're interested, just hit up the donate tab on the website to donate today. A huge, huge, huge thank you to all those that have donated. I cannot express how thankful I truly am. And speaking of thankful, you may or may not have noticed that the Hometown Legend episodes are jam-packed with the work of the very talented Warren Pon Abbott. Warren is the extraordinary voice actor that brings many of these written submissions to life. So a gigantic thank you to Warren for taking time out of his busy schedule to make MAU the best it can be. Thank you, Warren. And on that note, back to the show. Our next two calls seem to have a lot in common, so I'm going to play them back to back. The following is Josh's story from Vermont and Claire's story from New Jersey, respectively. Hey, uh, Derek, this is Josh from Vermont. Uh, currently listening to the Grab Bag episode, just heard that story about the uh, pig man. Fortunately, I'm driving at the moment, so I can't provide a bunch of extra info, but there is actually a legend in Vermont about a pig man. I believe the story is uh, up in, uh, like, north-central Vermont. There, in the 70s, I believe it was the 70s, uh, there was this weird creature that was going in, around and finding, uh, like, livestock in people's barns and stuff. And uh, the one farmer that saw it claimed that it was, like, five or six feet tall, like, pink like a pig and had, a like, a very pig-like face. Unfortunately, I can't give more details at the moment because I'm kind of drawn a blank, but hopefully when I get to my destination, I'll do a little bit more research and get back to you. Love the show, and uh, thank you. Hi, Derek. My name is Claire. I actually post a lot in the Facebook group. I'm actually wanting to address the Pigman story in this week's episode. I'm from New Jersey, and we have a long-standing sort of legend of the Pigman and there's all of this lore, and I'm from, I'm, so I'm from Central Jersey, but the Pigman story, I think, is from North Jersey. But there's all of this, you know, lore and these stories about the Pigman, and what happens, what's supposed to happen is, you're supposed to go to his house, and run around his house three times, and he comes out with an axe and chases you. I can't quite remember the story, but I believe... He became a pigman by some sort of witch's curse or something, but I know that there's a you know pretty pretty prominent part of New Jersey. So thank you. Bye. And thank you, Josh and Claire. I know the pigman has been a hot topic for the past couple years, due in part to the American Horror Story series that featured some sort of pig like creature. Honestly, I didn't watch it. But I can tell you that the Pigman legend persists in several states in the U.S. And for more on that information, we're going to kick it over to the Fortean Slip on YouTube. The shocking true story of the Northfield Pigman. Sam Harris, also known as the Pigman, is the legend of a boy aged 17 that went missing in the hills of Northfield, Vermont in 1951. The night before Halloween, October 30th, 1951, Sam set out with eggs in hand for picket night, a night of mischief. The next morning, when his parents awoke and found him missing, it set off a huge search party that lasted weeks and involved hundreds of locals over hundreds of square miles. Although never found, it is said there has been sightings of Sam, who some say became possessed by the devil himself that fateful night. He is known to slaughter pigs and eat their entrails, and hollow out pigs' heads to wear over his. 
Years later, in 1971, some high school kids were out drinking behind the school during a dance when this thing came walking out of the woods on two human legs. It was naked, covered in white hair, and was wearing a hollowed-out pig's head like some grotesque mask. Now I realize that we discussed the Pigman on a past Hometown Legends episode, but I thought with our recent Pigman call from a few episodes back, it would be relevant to re-explore. So I highly suggest you go check out the video from Fortean Slip, and keep your eyes out. You never know what might be out there. Thank you again, Josh and Claire, for submitting your Hometown's Legends. Our next story of the evening comes to us from the state of Virginia. The following call was submitted by CD. Hi, Derek. Been listening since forever, and I missed the last Hometown Legends. But, uh, figured I'd get this in now. I grew up in a side community in Hampton Roads, Virginia, called Pocosin. The name translates from local Native American tongue to floodplain. It's very fitting, seeing as half of the town exists as a massive swamp. Our main story is that of Dolly Messick, or Dolly Mammy as she's known. I went over two different renditions of this to make sure I had most of the details right, so here we go. The story takes place either late 19th or early 20th century, from when farming and fishing was still the main way to get by in town. Mrs. Messick's family were farmers who would have their cattle graze on the marshlands most of the day. On the day in question, a coastal storm was on its way, with rain and wind already starting. Dolly, worried for the cattle, asked her daughters to come help her round them up so that the cattle would be in by nightfall. The daughters refused, and in some stories, they sassed her back. Throwing on a cloak, Dolly said what most people would in that situation. If I die, I'm haunting you, and grumbled out into the storm. Hours went by, and she didn't return. Night came and went, and still she hadn't shown up, so the daughters and concerned neighbors, they went out into the early morning for a search. She was found by a fisherman, off a small creek near her house, legs sticking up out of a mud hole. Dolly was buried and mourned, and the community eventually settled back down. And then, the knocking began. All hours of the day, wherever the daughters went, they were followed by a knocking, and then it ramped up. The lamps would flicker, a slap would echo in the room, and then when the light returned, one of the daughters would have a red handprint on her face. Scratches, louder knocking, and one well-known incident of the girls waking up with their hair braided together. An army officer from nearby Fort Monroe came to investigate, hoping to calm the locals' nerves. Unfortunately, all he did was rattle his men, and left so confused that he wrote in his report that this could only be of supernatural origin. Eventually, a medium was brought in, hoping to clear things up. Asked to show itself, the spirit obliged. The lights dimmed, and one of Dolly's rocking chairs began to move, the shadow of a woman sitting in it, working on a ball of yarn. After that, it's unclear whether or not the hauntings continued. It is known for certain that they ended when the daughters died. Another little side note is that in the area of where the house used to be along a nearby creek, among all the grasses and vegetation, a small area seems to continue to be barren, the spot where Dolly was found. I cobbled this together from memory of descendants telling the story, a newspaper article and a version from a book called Ghosts of Tidewater by L.B. Taylor Jr., who's done a whole series of Virginia ghost stories if anyone wants a good resource for those. Anyway, as I said, love the show. Hope you can use this and keep up the good work, man. Thank you, CD. This story sounds eerily similar to the infamous legend of the Bell Witch. For more on that legendary ghost story, here's Did You Know on YouTube. According to legend, way back in the summer of 1817, in the town of Adams, Tennessee, something terrible befell the Bell family, and it all started one evening when patriarch John Bell was walking through his 360-acre farm. It was during this walk that John saw something strange in the cornfield. It was what he would later describe as a dog with a rabbit's head. He shot at the strange animal a number of times and then joined his family inside. Later that night, the mysterious sounds of knocking and rattling chains 
were heard by the whole family. Each preceding night, it became louder and louder and was eventually joined by the sound of a strange voice chanting hymns. The bell children then began hearing rats gnawing on their bedposts, but the horrors were only the beginning. For over a year, John was so afraid of being called crazy that he told his family to hide what they'd seen and heard. Yet he decided to confide in his best friend, James Johnson, after his youngest daughter, Betsy, woke up with handprints and welts on her face. To investigate his friend's claims, James stayed in the bell house one night, ultimately confirming that he heard unusual sounds as well. Sure enough, all sorts of people were visiting the house to try to do the same. Even a young Andrew Jackson, back when he was still in the military, tried to visit. But once he arrived at their farm, the wheels of his carriage weirdly became locked. According to lore, the spirit haunting the Bell family claimed to be a former neighbor named Kate Batts, and she believed John treated her unfairly on a land deal. Not only did she want to kill him, but she was determined to prevent a boy in town named Joshua Gardner from marrying Betsy. Kate, later referred to as the Bell Witch, apparently caused John to suffer several choking attacks over the next few years, which he said felt like a sharp stick in the mouth. On December 20, 1820, John Bell died after falling into a coma. The family found a vial of poison in the room, and the Bell Witch was allegedly proud to claim responsibility for forcing him to drink it. Betsy broke off her engagement to Joshua just three months later. Apparently, having finally achieved what she wanted all along, the Bell Witch bid farewell to the family, although she promised to return someday. She apparently wasn't lying because John Bell Jr. said she visited him in 1828 and told him a number of secrets from throughout time, including a prediction of the Civil War. Of course, you can find the clip to this full video in the show notes for tonight's episode. Thank you again, CD, for sharing your hometown's legend. And just like that, it seems we've hit our final segment in the Season 6 finale. To kick our final segment off, here's Sean from the state of California. Hey Derek, this is Sean calling from Orange County, California, and I want to share with you one of my hometown legends, the legend of Black Star Canyon, which I'm actually surprised hasn't come up on your show at all. For many teenagers, visiting Black Star Canyon at night was treated like a rite of passage, and there is a ton of local folklore surrounding the place. Some rumors I heard when I was in high school was that it was the site of massacres brought upon by settlers towards the indigenous communities. It's a site that's commonly used for biker gangs, black mass rituals, and cross burnings for the KKK. That children died in a bus crash and that their spirits roamed the property and that a school burned down and all the children perished, and their spirits also roam the property. As I'm sure you know, Orange County is a well-developed area, and I think the allure of Black Star Canyon is that it's an area that is so alien to the rest of Orange County, at least Southern Orange County. And I gotta say, it's an absolutely beautiful area to go hiking or mountain biking in. But at night, it's a totally different story. It's practically in the middle of nowhere. Raves go on deep in the canyon, so there's always some kind of music eerily playing in the background. A majority of the property is owned by one man who people describe as a hermit who doesn't like visitors, and some say he carries a shotgun on him at all times. And worst of all, there's no cell phone service out there. I heard stories from friends and friends of friends who said they've seen ghosts there, but I've been there a dozen times during the night and day, and I haven't seen any school, abandoned school that's been burned down. And while there was an abandoned bus, there were no records of children dying from one that crashed there. Anyway, I absolutely love your show. It has a coast-to-coast -coast vibe, and I love creeping myself out when listening to it on long drives throughout the night. I have some stories myself that I wish to send to you for next season which might include something otherworldly that I saw during my travels in Black Star Canyon. So keep your eyes open. Now before I comment on that call, this was an additional Black Star Canyon submission from an anonymous listener. So 
this is uh, for the hometown legends. I'm calling from Orange County, California. And in my hometown, uh, one of the scariest places is called Black Star Canyon. Uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, about Black Star Canyon online. But I've been there three times, and each time I've had several different scary experiences. The first one, I was with a group of six friends. We decided to go to Black Star. We parked the car. We uh, walked into the canyon, maybe about three or four miles. And uh, the goal was to reach the sign with a bunch of bullet holes. And we actually came across the sign. wasn't anything spectacular. Uh, but we turned back. The sun was going down. And you have to understand this long road that Black Star has one side of the complete... Uh, that was a ditch. The all, it was basically, once you go off the side of the road, you're in a ditch, and it goes for miles into the canyon. And on the other side of the road was just a bunch of hills and mountains. And as we're walking back to our car on this three-mile hike, my friend and I start to hear these voices, and these voices were uh, for female voices, and in a language that we could not understand. And this continued on almost the entire way to our car, so on this road here, giggling, and we can't see anyone, so you can look on the side of the road, and there's nothing but brush and dead trees, but yet this giggling is as if they are trailing us, uh, following us, uh, and the weird thing is that it was in a different language. I took three years of French, I took three years of German, I, I grew up speaking Italian, and what I heard from those voices and those females were not anything that I was familiar with. Anyways, um, eventually the laughing and giggling stopped, and we all ended up hearing it. It's quite scary. Thank you. Bye. Thank you to both callers. Now, at first, I was going to try to find a clip that kind of sums up the history of Black Star Canyon. It seems there's some rumors of a Native American massacre that took place there in the 1800s. But instead of doing that, I decided that with it being so close, that I would just take a trip down there and do a little investigating myself. So stay tuned. In a month or so, I'm going to head down that way and shoot a little video and put something together for you guys. But in the meantime, I did find a regular call that describes some strange activity that took place in or around Black Star Canyon. Now, I don't know for a fact that it is the same anonymous caller that submitted the story about Black Star, but it certainly seems like that is the case. You can be the judge on that. But the following is Antoine's call from the state of California. Hey, how's it going? My name is Guy Tolan. I'm calling from Orange County. And I uh, kind of wanted to share this experience. It's possibly paranormal. But this occurred my senior year of high school. So it was just my mom and I that lived in a four-bedroom house. Pretty big lived in uh, Orange County, kind of near Black Star Canyon. So I had gone out on a Saturday night, and I got back home around 11, and my mom was on the couch, and then it was right in time for SNL. SNL was going to start. So my mom's on one couch, I'm on the other, and we're waiting for SNL to start. And suddenly, my mom and I hear this loud bang. And it was so loud, and we couldn't really figure out, we couldn't, we just looked at each other, like, what was that? What just fell? Upstairs didn't have too many items that were able to create, that, that, that would make that sound. But before we could even pinpoint or guess what had just fallen, we then started to hear more banging. It was banging, and this time banging, like, on the walls. And the sound, it almost sounded like people were fighting upstairs. Uh, the walls were being hit. Just you could hear the, the sound travel from one side of the house to the other. And instantly, my mom and I, we jump up, we run to the stairs, we look up. The way the house is set up, right when you enter the house, there are um, the first set of stairs and a second set of stairs. You can see from the front door the upstairs. And so here we are, and we hear this, this banging sound, uh, rumbling. It sounds like two people, again, are just going at it upstairs. We, my mom runs, she gets her purse, we leave the house, we jump in the car. Fortunately, my grandmother doesn't live too far, didn't live too far. We drive, go, we meet the cop. So we come at the house, we get them, 
give them the key, they, they enter the house, and we're talking there are four cops that show up. Each cop has got guns on them, and they go in one after another. Now, one thing that was weird is that when we returned to the home to meet the, the cops, all the lights in the house were turned off. We left the house with all the lights on. We bolted. So we had these cops, and you could see from outside where my mom and I are standing, you could see the cops' flashlights shine up through all those different rooms of the house, see the, the lights going through the windows. And they're in there for a good amount of time. They come out finally and they say, you know, we couldn't find anything. There was no signs of a break-in. And my mom and I, we just, we were baffled. Oh, here we were. We, we, heard, we heard these sounds. We could, you could feel the house shake. It was like anything I had ever experienced. We never saw anything. Again, it was more so of you're hearing these sounds going on. And it wasn't uh, like a poltergeist thing where, where cupboards are opening and shutting. No, this was banging, people fighting. And you know, we actually ended up you know, going back in the house. Nothing happened after that. We never experienced anything quite like it after. And it was just one of those things where will just always be uh, unexplained. I had had a few experiences in the house after, um, but nothing like that. And yeah, we do look pretty close to Black Star Canyon, and if you know anything about Black Star Canyon, that place is just completely messed up. Just had my fair share of paranormal encounters there as well. But anyways, thank you. Love the podcast. Always looking out for new episodes. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Antoine. Now, the call kind of messed up your name, so if I got that wrong, I truly apologize. Now, of course, disembodied voices are some of the reported activity to come from Black Star Canyon, so this story certainly coincides with other claims that have been made for that area. But like I said, more on that in a few weeks when I get a chance to drive down there and shoot a little video. And that's going to do it for this final episode of Season 6. Now, before I sign off here, I want to thank each and every one of you once again for taking the time out of your busy schedules to listen and participate in this little program. There are big, exciting things coming for Season 7 and big, exciting things coming in the future of Monsters Among Us. So please, stay tuned. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Warren Pon Abbott, Eddie Lloyd, and Tony Bell. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And music for this episode was provided by Mayu and Coag Music. Thank you all for listening, and until next season. sneaky little devil. You found the hidden part of Monsters Among Us. Tonight I have two bonus stories to share with you. The first was submitted by Laura in the country of Finland. Greetings. I am Laura and I grew up in a smallish town in Finland called Kangasala. There are no cryptids or anything like that, but there is a famous stone built in the wall of the church here that is said to bleed blood. The church's stone wall on the north side was said to have been built in bloodstone in the memory of a tragedy that happened in the 17th century. According to legend, a young noble had fallen in love with a young peasant woman, Kusalan Karina, who was accused of witchcraft and was executed. Just before her death, the woman swore on her innocence, and to prove her innocence, the stone above her would always be bleeding blood. The bloodstone is a small stone with plenty of red color, I don't know if the substance is ever tested, but based on the articles I read, I really doubt it. 
There is also a related story of the sounds of ghost bells heard under the lake. The church bells were sunk in the lake during the Russian invasion during the Great Northern War and can supposedly be heard during a calm summer evening. It has been a great honor to submit to Monsters Among Us. Thank you for hours of entertainment during my long night walks. The sound effects and ambient noise have made me look over my shoulder many times. I will return if I bump into anything during these walks. That is, if I survive the encounter. Thank you, Laura. Well, thank you, Laura. European countries certainly seem to hold a ton of folklore, and I hope that future Hometown Legends episodes will get to include some of these awesome legends. So thank you again for submitting. And for the final call of the evening, I kick it over to Rich in the state of Massachusetts. Hi, my name is uh, Rich. I just want to tell my story. I want to talk about where I grew up. I grew up in Boston. I'm from Boston, and I grew up in the inner city in a, in a project in a town called Jamaica Plain. I'm about 42 years old, and this happened back in the early 80s. I'd say around 81, right around that time. And basically, there was this phenomenon back in, the, back in that time around that area called the Killer Clowns, where these guys dressed up as clowns were driving around in vans trying to kidnap kids, trying to grab kids and pull them in the van. And it was described as a black van, a dark van. Anyway, you could, this, this, this validates my story. There is a book called New England Urban Legends where this actual story is told in that book. And this, this validates my story. So there was a bunch of us kids that would hang out together in, in that area. And that's what all the kids were talking about. It was like, that's, you know, the killer clowns, the killer clowns. It was like all over the place. And even the police were getting phone calls from, from kids or from parents or from even school area districts saying that these, the kids keep reporting these, these guys driving around dressed up as clowns trying to kidnap these kids, trying to grab them. And so that's, that's all that was talked about during that, that year. And I was only like five or six years old. And I remember this like, like it was yesterday. So anyway, one day I'm, I'm playing, I'm with a bunch of, you know, my friends or whatever. And we're playing on a little jungle gym and across the street from where I grew up, there's a church called St. Thomas's church. So we're playing all of a sudden, and, and you can see directly across from, from the courtyard where we were, you could see right into a parking lot, the back of a church parking lot. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm standing there, and all of us kids are just, like, standing frozen. We're just frozen looking. What we seen was these guys dressed up as clowns, and even some of the re- descriptions of these clowns, there was a guy with suspenders on, a heavy set one with suspenders, which was described in, in some of the, you know, the, the word going around. And there was a van, there was a, a dark van, a blue van, and it had a ladder on the back door, which was even talked about. And these, 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 these guys, it was like four or five of them, they were all dressed up as clowns, and they were putting boxes into a van. And I, I don't know, like, what are the odds of that? The odds of these guys dressed up as clowns in the back of a church parking lot. I mean, what are the odds? This had to be them, you know? And I, I just, I froze in fear. I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I ran so fast. I lived on the third floor. I ran so fast. I almost, I flew up the stairs. I don't even remember even, even touching the stairs. I remember just being up in my room and I burst through the door and I, I slid underneath my bed. And I was uncontrollable. I, I, I couldn't talk. I, I, was, I was horrified. To that day, I never liked clowns. It was like... You know, I hated clowns, and and I guess um, to add to this, um, one of the kids that we knew that hung that grew up together that we knew, I guess his story is they try to grab him right on that side street. They try to grab him and pull him in the van, and I guess he he was able to fight him off and um, you know get out of the, you know you know 
get out of it. But I guess they open the back door of the van and they try to grab him. It's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. The spring of 1981 or 82, right around there. And uh, it happened in these little areas like Brookline, um, Jamaica Plain, and these, 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 these inner cities in, in Boston. And I guess the phenomena happened all across the United States that year. It was very, very weird. They called it the year of the killer clowns. And, uh, well, I seen them, and, and, and I, I know what I was saying. And uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Thank you, Rich. Now, as Rich mentioned, the early 80s did see a massive flap of killer clown sightings. And for more on that, here's Newsy from YouTube. People living in Greenville, South Carolina, are being warned about a group of clowns that are trying to lure kids into the woods. Three reported clown sightings overnight. As the nationwide clown hoax problem continues. Some local law enforcement agencies are asking the FBI and DHS what to do uh, about creepy clown sightings. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if the president's aware of this phenomenon. Creepy clowns have been terrorizing towns across America for the past few months. But this isn't the first time that America has faced an onslaught of clownish terror. That distinction goes to the 1980s. First came a real killer clown. Serial killer John Wayne Gacy killed dozens of men and boys in the late 70s. He also moonlighted as Pogo the Clown for events around town. But the real clown panic began in Boston in 1981 when a school counselor sent a memo out to the school district warning about clowns bothering children. It only spiraled from there. Not long after the original sightings, phantom clowns were being spotted in Omaha, Nebraska, Kansas City, Missouri, and Denver, to name a few places. Now, if this is something that interests you, I highly suggest checking out a documentary by the name of Killer Legends, directed by Joshua Zeman. That name may sound familiar. If you've ever seen the documentary Cropsey, He's one of the directors of that film. So thank you, Rich, for taking the time to share your hometown legends, and thank you for supporting this show. I will be talking to you guys in a little less than three weeks. Have a good night. It all starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To start the ignition, to feel confident, to be connected to everything. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle, but it becomes a dynamic experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open, but the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.